Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about making the world safe for kids. Or perhaps just keeping kids safe from the world. In the previous inappropriate conversation, I dealt with my childhood in a way that I don't think I've done before, really dredging up stories of how me and my siblings played together and how me and my kids played together and some of the things that I was able to bring from you know, that previous generation forward and ways that you can excite and interest the imagination of kids of any, of any period, of any era, if you just are willing to, to actually to do the hard work of playing and to not make someone else do all the imagining for you. This ties in to what I want to talk about today, except I'm going to take it up into the teenage years, because I do think that it's probably a really good idea for parents to invest a great deal of their focus and their energy in keeping their kids safe. But there's two ways you can go about it. There may be more than two, but the two that you know seem obvious are, do you try to keep your kids safe from the world, or do you try to make the world safe for kids? Now, I can see going to spend an extended period of time with a relative going in and at the time that you move your kids in for, I say, a three or four week visit, I can see child proofing your family member's home or even your friend's house if you talk about it first. Little things like plugging the electrical outlets and stuff like that should not be that annoying if it's all about keeping your kids safe. But long gone is the age when I was maybe, I don't know, uh, 13, 14 years old, where you could just hop on your bicycle and bike ride seven, eight miles to a different part of town. I didn't live that close to a shopping mall when I was in middle school. So if I wanted to go look at records, if I wanted to go look at books or anything else, I had a a nice long ride. And my parents, to my knowledge, didn't lose a lot of sleep over the idea that with me having a good bicycle, well-maintained, and knowing the rules of the road, would use neighborhoods more than city streets and sidewalks wherever possible to take a bicycle ride that was essentially an eight and a half mile round trip. Today, I would be mortified if I thought that either one of my kids at the same age were taking that kind of an extended bicycle journey through an urban landscape because you have to worry about your kid getting in a traffic accident or having that sort of an issue. But we also, I think, feel like we have to worry more today about things like pedophiles or even just kidnappers and killers. For me, when I was you know, even younger in elementary school, we had a whole groups of us riding around on our bicycles. We were probably more a menace to the adults that we encountered than any adult would have ever been a menace to us. But it's a different world now. So it makes sense to say, hey, I'm going to have to keep my kids safe. There are certain things I'm not going to do. I'm not going to take some, you know, a kid of a certain age and just show up in a mall and send them off in one direction and I'm going to go off in another direction and we'll just agree to meet at the food court at a specific time later. It doesn't work. But what about the idea that we hear so often today about making the world safe for kids? To me, that's a very bad idea. It borders on irresponsible, partly because I don't think it's going to work. The amount of energy required to accomplish that just doesn't make sense. But the other thing is, We ought to be preparing our kids to be in that world. So it's okay for the world that they go into 
to have certain dangers because at some point our kids need to be equipped to protect us when we get much, much older from our own vulnerability to the dangers of the world that we live in. So it's that sort of that circle going on where I don't think that you want to create an anesthetized planet. But I know people who do. My wife and I have spoken on many times. She doesn't believe that anything animated should ever be meant for a teenage or adult audience. The cartoons are for kids. It's that simple. And she never really likes some of the cartoons that were still today intended for kids if they are too much on the edge. So yeah, I tried to get you know past the idea of watching The Simpsons. Uh, it just never really happened because you know that cartoons was for kids idea. So there is a mentality that some things are just off limits. And you see this in the Pacific case for George Carlin, where um, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that there were certain words that could not be used on radio because radio had to be at, at all times or certainly during most of the hours of the day safe for kids. When we first got cable, my parents wanted nothing to do with HBO or any other sort of pay movie channel because those pay movie channels are going to have uncut films on them and those uncut films were not appropriate for kids and everything on the television had to be safe for kids. I don't exactly know why we were so quick to pick up a Betamax when it first came out, because theoretically the Betamax was going to bring in things which were the equivalent of HBO. You're going to go and buy or borrow didn't seem to be a concept back then, but buy a movie that you can show on the TV that would be an uncut film. It would be R rated or uh, what we might have called a hard PG back then, where language was going to be used that wouldn't be appropriate on television. And it just comes down to that that whole notion. So what I want to do is I want to walk through a few examples where I experienced parents and their effort to protect kids. So in other words, I'm not going to be recounting any tales from my teen years, at least I don't think I am. Instead, I'm going to be dealing with me as an adult, perhaps a young adult, and interacting with parents who were unwilling to what I consider to be manage their part of the equation where they had a responsibility, just like they wouldn't ship their kid off on a bicycle through the rough side of town because that's where the used record store was. They also shouldn't be sending their kid off in this case, sending their kid off into the record store or the bookstore and expect the, the clerk in the store to be accountable for whether what the kid picks off off the shelf is you know meant for adults or meant for children. It's as if, if you worked at a Walden Books or a, a Barnes & Noble or a B. Dalton or a Borders, that there was an expectation that as soon as the kid walked into the store, that some sort of force field would appear around certain sections of the store, that the kid shouldn't be looking in certain elements of the, of the romance section, certain elements of the sci-fi section. And those stores, especially the big box retailers, have done a lot to try to create a children's section in the store or a young adult section in the store. But the reality is kids wander around. If you're not with them, they're going to wander around. I have told one of these stories before, so I won't recount this one. It was the God Shuffled His Feet, the title track of Crash Test Dummies, playing when that Crash Test Dummies album was new in the store that I worked in because it was in-store play. It was a new release at a time, a group that I was still enjoying. So I was in favor of playing this. And I actually thought the theological message behind the title track of that work was a good one. But in the Bible Belt, um, God shuffling his feet was apparently completely unacceptable. And I got more than a snootful of conversation over, over that. But I want to start further back managing a movie theater. And I want to just recount a story of how adults 
deal with kids today because there's two kinds of adults. There's a kind that want everything to be completely antiseptic and therefore you can be their kid's babysitter and their kid's going to be safe because nothing in your store is allowed to be meant for an older audience. Everything has to be kid friendly. And then there's the other kind of adult that just wants you to be the babysitter and the rest of it doesn't much matter. And I realize that the first group of adults that I've referred to critically is probably the way they are because they're so upset about the other group. So in the interest of full disclosure, let me begin with the control group and talk about bachelor party. I don't think this is too much to ask people to remember the Tom Hanks film bachelor party. It was an R rated movie. And from my memory, I think it earned it. Uh, as I recall, it had um, sexual talk, sexual situations, nudity, and um, this was before we had you know, really come to know Tom Hanks as being some sort of squeaky clean America's hero. We didn't really have that kind of, you know, the cement wasn't dry on who we thought Tom Hanks was just yet. And um, I considered Bachelor Party to be the kind of R-rated movie that you shouldn't just be letting you know, any kid into. And as a movie theater manager, I really had a mindset that if I was going to have to play by the rules of the Motion Picture Association of America – and censor things and be in charge of making sure that people of a certain age didn't get into this particular film without a parent or guardian that ought to make that stick. And that the only incentive I had uh, from a box office perspective was getting the, the second ticket sale. So I never allowed a parent to come in, buy a ticket on behalf of, of a junior high school or elementary school kid and ship them off to the R rated movie unattended. First, I didn't want to have to own whatever the kid might do or however the kid might react to what was on the screen um, with no guardian around. And this was one of those cases. Guy drives up in his pickup truck with his, you know, seventh grader, probably, you know, I'm going to guess somewhere around 11, 12 years old at the most, and dropped him off at the box office wanting one ticket to bachelor party. And uh, I said, don't you mean two? And he said, no, I mean one ticket to bachelor party. I'm just going to send my son in. I said, I'm sorry, this one's an R-rated movie, and he needs to be he needs to go to the film with his parent or guardian. This is something that may be a little bit different in America than it is in Europe. In Europe, when something is deemed to be age inappropriate, I think that's it. That maybe your parents can't even take you in. But I went to see Animal House when I was in maybe eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade, because my mom got confused and thought it was Animal Farm and felt like the classic George Orwell story would be a good film for me and my even younger sister to see. And the reason I saw the entire film Animal House theatrically was that she was so mortified at the mistake that she'd made that she didn't want to be seen coming out of the theater. So we pretty much sat there for the whole film. And I got to see Animal House, well, at what we might consider to be an inappropriate age. In the case of Bachelor Party, though, I told the gentleman, I said I was more than happy to sell him two tickets and that I would even cut him some slack. And if he wanted to buy the second ticket and send his kid in by himself, I'd look the other way. I'd let it go. Now, the two problems that this man had was, first, he was not in the mood to buy the second ticket at all. And second, his number one priority was getting rid of his kid for at least an hour and a half. In retrospect, my theory is that this, this guy was having an affair. He needed to be able to go somewhere with his son and tell his wife that he went somewhere with his son and yet at the same time be somewhere else for an hour or two. So my theory was, 
he was just trying to cheat on his wife or something. And his attitude and his angry demeanor made me less likely to be cooperative. And here I am, I'm early 20s, you know, and kind of that really annoying sort of attitude that you can get where you're um, a sophomore in every sense of the word and that you're you're no longer entry-level clerk, you've got some power. And I just simply drew the line right there. You're not buying a ticket for your you know 11-year-old to see bachelor party. You're going in with him. And essentially made the man so angry that he threatened and delivered on the threat to show up after close and run me down in the parking lot. Well, he delivered on the showing up after close part. I didn't let him deliver on the run me down in the parking lot part. Um, announcing his evil plan beforehand was kind of a bad Batman villain move. And I was able to call the police and, and take that whole situation down a different path. But so you have that kind of parent. The kind of parent is like, listen. I don't care whether my kid watches an R-rated movie or not. I don't care if this is a slasher film or not. Whatever it is, I just need an hour and a half to myself. And you're a movie theater. Doesn't that make you a de facto babysitter? In some ways, though, it was worse in the record stores. And part of the reason I think it was worse in the record stores was that our record store had what I, I thought then, happily, was a liberal policy. I'd say then... And it doesn't mean to imply that I think the policy is bad now. I think the policy was always good. At the time, the Parents Music Resource Center, essentially Tipper Gore and other Washington wives, coming up with a plan to force every record they didn't like to carry a parental warning label on it. Um, When that was all going down, stores had to decide how are we going to handle the whole warning label thing. And it was so bad that at one point in one of the uh, southwestern states in America, the uh, legislatures were considering laws that would put clerks in jail for selling an album that had a warning sticker on it. So you could get in trouble as a store in two different ways. If you sold something with a warning sticker on it to the wrong aged person, there were some states that wanted to throw you in jail for that. And I'm not just talking about the clerk. The clerk, the manager, fines against the chain, the whole nine yards. And there were others that, that passed laws or tried to pass laws that basically said, we don't care whether there's a label on it or not. We don't trust the record label over there in Hollywood. And if you sell something to somebody that they find offensive, you've broken the law. And I can remember my boss at the time at sort of the district and regional level of this record store company having to go and speak to state legislators and say, listen, here's what's going to happen if you pass this law. If you pass this law that that I can be arrested for selling something that anybody finds offensive for any reason whatsoever, then I'm going to have to sticker everything. So you imagine the conversation happening in Oklahoma, where Garth Brooks, absolutely one of my favorite country music artists of all time, is a native son. He's from the general metro area of Oklahoma City, one of the small suburbs of Oklahoma City. We had to go and say, hey, listen, we're going to have to sticker classical music with no words on it at all, because Ravel's Bolero was used as a soundtrack to the movie Ten. You could understand somebody who's very uptight about Bo Derek finding the music of Bolero to be offensive because it was used in the movie 10, I can't run the risk. I can't run the risk that somebody who works for me is going to get arrested over something like that. The only solution I've got is to put a sticker on every single album that we sell. Because at the time, and probably still today, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon does not have a warning label on it. And yet, it refers to bull feces, so perhaps it should, or could, have a warning label on it, if you wanted to go by the same standard that the U.S. Supreme Court was holding um, George Carlin to. It's the same four-letter word starting with an S that was going to get George Carlin in trouble. 
But the argument that I think that was the most impactful and the one that I enjoyed hearing about the most was Garth Brooks, that even if we don't label every single tape and CD in the store, which, of course, by its nature, makes the whole labeling process you know, idiotically moot. As a parent, how are you supposed to use these labels to help you decide what's okay for your kid to listen to or not if everything has a warning label? If Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith and the entire contemporary Christian section has a parental warning label on it, how do you know the difference between that and something that probably would offend you? But we said, hey, even if we only stickered the things that your law, your bill, proposed to be a law, reads... Even if we only stickered those, at the very least, we'd have to put a warning sticker on No Fences by Garth Brooks. Why would you have to put a warning label on Garth Brooks? He's not heavy metal. He's not gangster rap. He's not that grinding on the dance floor dance music. Well, the problem, you know, Mr. Legislator, is that your law says that any reference to sexual activity, even without using explicit or profane language, has to be stickered. She's my honeycomb, and I'm her sugar cane. We really fit together if you know what I'm talking about. We're two of a kind, working on a full house. A Garth Brooks song from the album No Fences. So that's the environment we're dealing with. And what you know, the record company that I worked for decided to do, the retailer, was to say, we're going to, um, wherever possible, buy the version that has the warning sticker on it because the warning sticker isn't inherently a good idea. There's nothing wrong with the idea of telling parents, hey, this one's not the clean version. This one is the clean version, for example. So if the, if the rap group Cypress Hill comes out with two releases of their Black Sunday album, one with a sticker, one without a sticker, we'll carry them both. Yeah, so it's, it's a good idea to carry the one with the sticker. Or at least if someone gives you the option of buying a non-clean version of Cypress Hill's Black Sunday without the warning label on it, well, that's a very bad idea because the warning label is going to help us understand which one's been edited or censored, depending on your perspective, and which one has not been edited or censored, depending upon your perspective. So our policy was we will always carry the warning sticker whenever possible, but we will sell the product to anybody who has the money to buy. The theory being... That if you are truly too young to buy this particular release, you probably don't have the cash to make the purchase yourself. But either way, whether you're a teenager and there's a gray area as whether it's okay for you to buy this or not, or whether you're somebody who's much, much older in your years, we're going to alert you to the fact that the album that you're picking up or the CD that you're picking up has explicit language on it. That does a couple of things. First, it protects us as a store because we don't, we don't want to go through the hassle of you buying the wrong one and having to come in and trade it in for the right one. That creates a returns problem for us. It creates a refund nightmare, to be honest, that puts us at the risk of, uh, of a cashier trying to take advantage of policy and maybe you know, do some internal theft. It's just bad all around. So every time somebody would come to our register, we would tell them, this one has explicit language on it. I wanted to make sure you understood that. And that was probably the thing that our cashiers would say more often than anything other than thank you or paying with cash or charge or check today. I mean, it was a very common thing to say. The other advantage, of course, is you get each one of these teenage record buyers on the record, pun intended, saying, yes, 
this is the one I want. This is the one I intend to buy. And what can happen from time to time is that you get a teenager who will tell you to your face that it is okay for them to have that particular album in their house. And then to deal with an unhappy parent a few hours or a few days later, who is not at all on the same page with their kid about what music is and is not welcome in their kid's record collection. And that's where I want to pick up after a quick break. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. As I recall, it was a busy Saturday morning in November or December the exact wrong time of year to be dealing with a problem at the cash register. But we had one on this Saturday morning. A mother had come in with a 14-year-old girl. The girl was pouting and not speaking at all. The mother would not be quiet, to be honest with you. She was beside herself, uh, angry, um, speaking fire and brimstone to whoever was with an earshot over the absolute outrage that this store had sold her teenage daughter a copy of a Marilyn Manson album that had an explicit language sticker on it. I apologized to her that unfortunately the group Marilyn Manson did not release clean versions of their albums, and therefore um, we were not going to be able to do any better form of refund, like exchange this one for a clean version, that unfortunately we were going to have to either give her her cash back or let her exchange the um, CD for any other CD in the store that she wanted. Didn't even have to be the same price. If she found one less expensive, we'd refund the cash difference. If she found one more expensive, we would give full credit for the CD that had been purchased by misunderstanding. Someone was not at all patient with the idea that this was a misunderstanding. To her, this was a evil record company trying to warp the minds of America's children and had the audacity to reach into her house and start with her own child. And in the course of the conversation, where again, we're offering cash refund immediately, we wanted to solve the problem as quickly as possible. It became clear, because she made it clear, that this woman had no intention of ever buying another thing in my store as long as she lived. And that if she had her way, her daughter would never step foot in this store again as long as she lived. And that she was going to tell all of her friends about what happened and this evil that had been done with this terrible Marilyn Manson band. And I'm, by the way, personally not a fan of Marilyn Manson. But the problem with me as a retailer, and this may be a good reason why I don't work in stores that, you know, that often anymore, the second you let me know that you're not really a customer, that you never were a customer in the first place, and you're only here now trying to undo a purchase that you regretted having been made, and that you're never going to be a customer again as long as you live, well, that sort of relieves me of the pressure of trying to impress you. I no longer have the burden of trying to make sure that no matter what, you're still going to come back. Because you've told me with a great deal of conviction that you're never going to come back no matter what happens. We finally ended up refunding the purchase. And after I explained to the woman a couple of more times, because I, I just got the idea that she wasn't hearing me, that she needed to vent, so we let her vent. And then I tried to explain and just set her off again. So she needed to vent again, so we let her vent again. And finally I said, listen, we warn everybody Regardless of age, when they make a purchase with an explicit language sticker on it, we warn everybody, man, there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever 
that your daughter told us that this CD was welcome in your home because no one makes a purchase through this register without us saying, this is an explicit language CD. Are you sure it is welcome in your home? And this, you know, 13, 14 year old girl said unequivocally, yes. That didn't impress the mom. The mom didn't have any issue at all with her daughter, at least not in this conversation inside the store. It was totally the store. We shouldn't be allowed to carry this CD. If we're allowed to carry this CD, it should be in some back room somewhere where there's drapes and no one else can see the CD unless they come in and specifically ask for it. We should have this thing brown bagged below the counter that it shouldn't fall into the hands of innocent children. I stopped her there and I said, you're not hearing me. This is not a case of innocent children. Your issue is with me. I understand that I apologize, but you also have a problem with your daughter. Because your daughter has either lied to me or lied to you or lied to both of us. She told me you'd be okay with this Marilyn Manson CD being in your house. Now, the good news, I told her, and perhaps a mistake of judgment, the good news is she's still alive. She looked at me like I was crazy. Like, would listening to the music threaten her life? Was I acknowledging her argument that this music was somehow dangerous? No, I said, we're lucky she's still alive because you gave your daughter a $20 bill, sent her off to the mall to buy whatever she would with it, and felt no personal accountability whatsoever for whatever she may pick up. Between you and me, ma'am, $20 will buy a lethal dose of crack. She did not hear me that day, and my suspicion is that she never would and she never will. But the reality is... This notion of making the world safe for kids, especially in the example of what I would consider to be intelligent, grown adults, it doesn't work because most of the time, this woman would have had a better answer for me about Marilyn Manson. Her answer would have been that, yes, her daughter did this and she's in trouble with me for it because I'm mad at you for selling the CD to her, but I'm mad at her for saying it was okay. But that's not usually the answer that you hear because the people who want to make the world safe for kids aren't usually talking about their own kids. They get very defensive when you have the temerity to suggest that somehow they can't keep control of their own kids. It's not about that at all. This woman wasn't telling me that she had no ability to control her own daughter's behavior. What she wanted me to do by removing the album from the shelves or making sure that I changed the company policy to never allow a parental warning album to be bought by anybody who was under the age of 18, she was worried about controlling everybody else's kids. That's where the hypocrisy really lies here, that most of the parents who are obsessed with warning labels and banning albums and so forth and so on are not trying to protect their own children. Most of them are very self-righteously satisfied with how good they're doing as parents to keep that trash out of the hands of their kids. The best example I have of this is a heavy metal band that I never really enjoyed listening to anyway called Deicide. Now, as a heavy metal listener, I've got a controversial pedigree. I'm a big fan of Black Sabbath, especially the Ozzy Gears. Danzig's Three is an album that I think that every Christian should hear, even though I don't think every Christian is going to enjoy the experience very much. Carcass, uh, with their offensively disgusting medical rock, the early Carcass albums. You know, that kind of music is, is not beyond the pale for me. I, I have a grindcore vibe to me. It's not what I listen to often, but it's in there. But I never much cared for Deicide. Deicide struck me as being a band that was, you know, that was playing off a type that they had a 
they had an image and they were kind of sort of, you know, a caricature was kind of how I thought about the band that other groups, I think, did the same kind of things the DSI was trying to do much better. And therefore, I wasn't surprised that we as a store had never sold a single copy of any DSI album. We had two on the shelf because one of the first three had at some point been returned to the record label for never having sold. Because the way the labels worked in my store is I could tell from looking at the sticker on the album when I received it, what kind of truck it came on. Did it come from UPS or FedEx or did it come from a common carrier? I could tell if it was the first time I'd received it, whether from the vendor or from my own you know, company's distribution center, or whether it was a recycle order, a replenishment delivery. I could tell all that just by quickly looking at a very small price sticker. All that information was embedded, for want of a better word, in the code. Code's generous. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't cryptic in any way. It was pretty easy to see. So much to my surprise, we had a man who came into my store one evening, outraged at the very idea that we were carrying the devil's music. Well, anytime people start talking to me about the devil's music, I got to be honest, I, I get a little bit on guard because I found that there's been some contemporary Christian music that has left me severely wanting in the accuracy of its theology, in the, you know, the actual real life ministry of the band itself. And I would almost rather hear a sincerely delivered anti-Christian message that could be used to educate Christians than to hear a saccharine, false, phony, contemporary Christian message. So from that perspective, I've got a pretty open mind about what, what the devil's music is and what it's not. But I also, again, don't, don't enjoy the band Deicide. So when he took me to the heavy metal section and pointed to Deicide and demanded that I remove them from the shelf, really as a store manager in a large chain, you know, I really wasn't in a position to have the authority to do that. So... Um, to be honest with you, I could have simply you know, punted that one up to the corporate office and said, I'm done with it. But instead, what I did was I simply told him that he didn't need to worry about this particular band. I wasn't thrilled that they were actually in my store, partly because, again, I didn't enjoy them, but also because they had annoyed me for more than just a couple of years now for having the one quality that a record store manager would never abide. They didn't sell. I mean, if at least the band had just created some some cash register activities, I probably could have gotten past the fact that I found them to be wanting. But they never sold. I said, don't worry about this band. This band has had no influence over the youth in our town, not one iota, because we have never sold a single copy. Their songs have never been played on our local rock radio station, even once. I have never seen a video by this band, even on MTV's Headbangers Ball. Now, that's not to say that there's never been a music video played, but pretty sure I could stand firm on the fact that our small city's radio station wasn't playing Deicide, because if they were, I probably would have been selling some of it. So I sent him on his way. I thought, comforted in the knowledge, that he didn't have to worry about banning this particular CD, that if he just waited a few months, it was going to get recalled for not having any sales. But he came back about a week and a half later. Once again, even more enthusiastically demanding that this album be removed from the shelf. And now he had the authority to, to, to do it in his mind because it was now selling. And if I wouldn't pull it off the shelf when it wasn't selling, maybe now I would because it was selling. And I said, well, how can you be so sure this album is sold? I didn't notice. He said, aha, you claim to be so well aware of everything that sells inside the four walls of your moderate to small record store, and yet this sold without you even noticing. 
I said, well, sir, with all due respect, I don't work 24 hours a day. So I went to the shelf, found the CD he was describing, and sure enough, its label had changed. It was now marked as recycled. It had sold and had replenished. So I went to the cash register, did a product lookup, found out exactly which day of the week it sold. I said, yeah, it appears that we did sell this one for the first time ever last Tuesday. And he goes, I knew it. And I'll tell you how I knew it, because I sent my wife in to buy the CD. I looked at him with a disappointment that I'm sure I could never have disguised, even if I tried. And to be honest with you, I didn't try. He said, I have been trying to wean our stock from this band that has never sold and isn't as good as I think they think they are for more than two and a half years now. And you have now pulled a stunt that guarantees that I'm not going to be able to return it to the vendor for lack of sales because we've sold one. We sold it to you. He goes, well, I'd be happy to bring it back in and refund it. That won't work. We have created activity against this article. I am now stuck with it for another year before I can persuade them that the activity of selling it in one week and refunding it a couple of weeks later still meant that we'd never sold it. Thank you very much. Now what am I supposed to do? That wasn't persuasive to him. He set a deadline and that he was going to pick at my store within three or four weeks on, um, this must have been around Halloween because in the Bible Belt, Heavy metal music gets, gets a lot of unwanted attention at Halloween. Then within three or four weeks, he was going to pick at my store on the Friday after Thanksgiving, create a ruckus, you know, try to blockade the entrance, do all sorts of stuff, get the media out, and make sure that everyone knew that I was selling this devil music in my store and that he had given me every opportunity to take it off the shelf, and I had turned him down. At this point, again, maybe it was the right time to bring in the corporate office, but I thought I had, I had one more card to play because the man was talking to me, and even though... He was completely wrong, and his thinking was 100% off base. He was reasoning with me. Now, that doesn't necessarily make you reasonable, but he was reasoning with me. So I told him this, that I was glad he was giving me the three weeks' notice. He wouldn't mind, could he at least confirm that within a week or so? Because if he was going to get on the media, and if he was going to protest outside my store, the kind of publicity that he was going to generate was going to force me to bring in 30 copies of every single one of their discs, including the one that I'd already gotten rid of and didn't carry anymore, because you can't buy that kind of publicity. The record label does not have the ability to put a 30-second spot or a 60-second spot or even an hour-long program on any radio station anywhere in the world to generate the kind of publicity you generate when you turn to a teenage audience and tell them, I'm about to ban this forever. This is so dangerous, you're not even allowed to hear it. If you told me that when I was in junior high school and high school, I would have bought the CD too. Hi, this is Will Tristrummer for those about to rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplysyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but you know, we try our best. We weren't always right. In fact, I would understand a, a parent of kids of a similar age looking at each one of these examples. Probably not the bachelor party one, but maybe the Marilyn Manson one and the deicide one and saying, you know, I'm not comfortable that the record label has that kind of autonomy. Well, welcome to America. The record store does have that kind of autonomy. The record label also has that kind of autonomy. As parents, you keep your kids safe from the world by exercising your parental authority, which carries far more weight, far more weight than any law or mall policy or, you know, constriction you want to put on the store could ever, ever perform. But we weren't always right. 
Seems like most of these things seem to happen when the store was crazy, crazy busy. Because when you get busy, you don't have a lot of time to sit down and have a long 35-minute conversation with somebody about how the record labels work. They see that Tipper Gore and her husband Al have successfully banned the albums from the store, and then they're shocked to find Marilyn Manson on the shelf. There's no time to deal with it rationally, I suppose. But in this case, we'd come in to work a very busy shipment shift on a uh, holiday, a December-type Saturday, where we're, we get a shipment in this particular location, and it was crazy for retail. Why would you allow a shipment to get delivered as late as 5 or 6 o'clock at night on a Friday night? I'll never know. Because we basically were told at one point by the corporate office and also by the mall to say, you shouldn't be putting this shipment out. I mean, I realize you want to get the product on the shelf as quickly as you can. But Friday, after school, kids all over the store, when that truck comes in, put the boxes in the back, do the minimum receiving you have to do, and then bring in the extra body Saturday morning to deal with it. And that's what we were doing. We had lots of people in there working very, very hard to deal with a very big Christmas replenishment shift on a Saturday and the mail late Friday night had brought us a piece of in-store play. Um, It's not often that you get good hip hop that you can play in the Bible belt. To me, there's, there's two kinds of hip hop. There's hip hop that's going to have explicit language or adult themes in it. And then there's hip hop that's going to be sort of dance bubblegum lollipop kind of music. And I don't intend any insult here to MC hammer, but There's MC Hammer and there's Public Enemy and there's a huge gulf between the two of them, right? So when you're dealing with other bands, bands that consider themselves to be part of the gangster rap genre, well, you can forget about it. There's no way you're going to get a clean version of NWA. And if you did, especially if it's bleeped, all you're going to hear is just a rolling string of bleeps. But as I mentioned earlier in the show, there were groups that had figured out how to make the clean version not quite so unpalatable. Cypress Hill, for example, would release both clean versions and non-clean versions of their CDs, which include depictions of drug abuse and, and you know gang-oriented behavior. And we got one from a group that was actually a big hit. So here I am. I'm holding a, a CD, full-length CD, clean version of a group that actually has a top 40 rap single. The band's name was DRS. And the single that was being played, and again, clean versions on radios and stuff like that, uh, was uh, Gangsta Lean, sort of the lead track from the album. So this is putting me right squarely in the middle of the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And so we're playing the clean version of the album, thinking, okay, we're, we're good, we're set, it can play. It is Saturday morning, not the best time for rep, but we're on a shipment shift here too. So even though we've opened the gates and we have customers in the store, we're still working some boxes and it's probably nice to have a good high energy, have a good beat going. So we're playing the music, we're putting away the shipment, we're taking care of customers. Really, everyone's firing on all cylinders, and I felt pretty comfortable that the music was not a problem. Until a woman came up to the register, holding, I don't know, a three- or four-year-old girl in her arms, very angry, demanding that we immediately take that CD off of our speakers and never play this in the store again. What are you thinking? You're out of your mind. And she didn't strike me as the same kind of people I was dealing with. This wasn't the crash test dummies lady objecting to the theology of the band. This wasn't the deicide guy who wanted to, you know, ban records and was willing to buy them to ban them in a strange twist. This was different. And I could tell that she was being real with me. So I immediately jumped the uh, player to a different disc and pulled that one out and was apologetically explaining to her that, hey, didn't know 
we got it yesterday. This is the first time we've heard it. It says clean version. And I think she could tell by my reaction and the fact that the CD did bear it out. It, clean in-store play was stamped on the front of it that it wasn't, you know, uh, I wasn't responsible for playing something that I shouldn't be intentionally, that this was truly something that I was hearing for the first time, totally catching me off guard. She relaxed. I assured her we would take it out of the mix, that the mistake wouldn't happen again. We had no intention to offend. And then I was a little bit surprised because usually when they clean them up for the store, it's it's not so bad. You know, the, the, you don't see very many profanities creep in. She looked at me and she said, oh, you totally don't get it, do you? You didn't hear it, the song at all. I said, no, I was really busy to helping people, taking care of the of the product we're trying to put away. She goes, well, just for the record, there's nothing inherently profane about the words give or me or head. I just have an issue with the way the band put them all together. So I got a laugh out of that more after she left than when she was in the store. But again, we weren't always right because the record industry on its own can't be expected to get this right. Their number one mission is not to make the world safe for kids. In fact, my mission is not to make the world safe for kids. I would be surprised if a healthy, well-balanced church necessarily has that as its mission. Making the church a safe environment should be a key part of it, but not the number one priority. And the lesson to take away with this idea of which to keep safe, the world of your kids, is that $20 can buy you an overdose of any drug that's on the street today. And ironically, at that point in time, we had managed to raise the drinking age up to 21 years old to where if you gave an 18-year-old kid, you know, $20 and he wanted to have a party, he's probably going to have better luck finding something illegal and potentially street dangerous than he is finding, you know, a six-pack or the equivalent. Our different drummer this week is Jim Henson. And believe it or not, Henson, who's you know credited widely and properly as being the, the founder and the maker and the father of the Muppets, you know, struggled at certain points in his career with how adult his art was allowed to be. He uh, broke through really to popular consciousness with you know Muppets that he introduced on Sesame Street. And it was, in fact, Henson's influence that helped lead Sesame Street as a show to decide that it was perfectly appropriate for the Muppet characters to interact directly with human actors. Initially, that wasn't necessarily what the Sesame Street um, design was. It wasn't the vision for the program. But as Henson would later do brilliantly with his Muppet show, it does work to have real live actors doing not just skits, but songs and dances with these puppets. And to Henson's credit, his puppet characters created enough of a life and a personality of their own that probably just by a short description, we could play a guessing game that would make it not just easy, but all too easy for you to determine whether I was describing Gonzo or Kermit or Miss Piggy or the Swedish chef or the two curmudgeons up in the balcony that Jim Henson, to his credit, created real-life characters out of what essentially would be viewed probably at the time as just toys by most of us. But I'm not necessarily going to cite Henson for the Muppets. I actually could come along later and name the Muppets as a group or a given Muppet in particular, 
as a different drummer all of its own. Because I'm not afraid to name fictional characters as different drummers. In some cases, that's a very appropriate approach. I want to cite Henson for a 1969 made-for-TV film called The Cube. It appeared February 23rd of that year on a program called Experiment in Television, and that's exactly what The Cube was. To my knowledge, it only aired twice, 1969 and in the following year on rerun. And in my memory and in my conversations with my brother about our memory of the show, we thought it was a Twilight Zone episode. Everything short of the Rod Serling introductions sounded like something from the Twilight Zone. You could have persuaded me that perhaps it was an episode instead of Night Gallery, but it didn't have that Night Gallery feel. You know, Twilight Zone was more avant-garde, um, even sci-fi, whereas Night Gallery was more of a horror anthology. And certainly the uh, Circle of Fear ghost story series had a far less slick and entertaining approach. It was trying to scare. The movie The Cube, in retrospect, although it was somewhat uh, somewhat a nightmarish principle, didn't seem to be designed to scare. In many ways, it seemed designed to entertain. The story is a man who's trapped in a cubicle white room. It's not an uncomfortably tight white room. It's bigger than a prison cell. And at times, it's, it's furnished in different ways during his experience because other characters, besides the man, can come in and out of the cube through doors which are hidden to him. They're allowed to come in, and they're allowed to go as they please, and he interacts with them. But he can't leave the cube. And that really was the extent of my memory. It's only very recently gotten its own Wikipedia page, and I think that's because Henson is beginning to have some of the... Henson Company is beginning to release some of these early experimental non-Muppet works uh, for sale on iTunes video and in other ways. So I've actually seen clips of this now on YouTube. Not sure... Um, whether there's going to be a complete version on YouTube or not. It seems like something that's going to be for sale on iTunes. Just an example of how inconsistent this is with some of the stuff that you'd see on the Muppets, it seemed a little bit, you know, a little bit darker. In one scene, a professor comes to visit him and tries to interpret what's going on in the man's life and says, you know, I, I believe that you're actually the perfect subject for television, that you could be in a, in a TV play or a TV show. And the man asks him, you know, skeptically what he's talking about. He says, you don't believe me? He says, of course not. So the professor answers, well, I should have thought you'd want to believe me. Because after all, there's only one other possible explanation, that you're altogether insane. Again, very much a Twilight Zone type of twist in the story. Now, we would see this kind of experimentation in a much more lighthearted way in The Muppet Show. And Henson is also responsible for you know, other films. Uh, the Dark Crystal struck me as being, you know, uh, well, dark, for want of a better word, compared to The Muppet Show. But The Cube left an impression on me that's lasted all this time. And I was very surprised to find out, have, having already picked Jim Henson as a different drummer, to find out that he was not only involved in this 1969 telefilm, but he's credited as the co-writer and the director. It's a delight to me that for two consecutive weeks, I'm talking about film direction and performance with things that were you know, only very briefly broadcast in my childhood that are now becoming available again. We've come full circle, perhaps, to a time when things which were originally released in such a manner that the creators thought they were putting them out into the ether and they would disappear and be gone forever, now have an opportunity to come back and to be revisited and re-explored. 
And I think when I get a chance to watch this film all the way through, to invest the you know, 55 minutes or however long the runtime would have been with limited commercial interruption originally, I think what I'm going to find is that it still has left a lot more to the imagination than a comparable teleplay would be today. It was very frustrating when the Canadian film Cube was released a decade or so ago, trying to look up Twilight Zone episodes or, or look up other keywords to find this TV show called The Cube, because every time you'd search, you'd find one of the Canadian films instead, which, as you might imagine, as is true with all sequels, the quality diminishes drastically with each, you know, retelling or with each sequel or prequel to the telling. But the problem that I have with the Canadian version of The Cube is that it makes what I think is probably a mistake in the last few minutes of the show in explaining everything away. Explaining it away from characters that we're not 100% sure we can trust to be telling us the truth or even to know everything that they're trying to describe to us. An experimental film like the one Jim Henson made probably does a lot less with exposition and leaves a lot more to the imagination than you would see if the same type of film was put on television today. I think that kind of ties up this episode with the previous one together pretty nicely around the concept of imagination. Jim Henson never thought twice about the idea that he could make living, breathing characters that could generate emotional responses in a wide range of emotions out of nothing more than what we would call, you know, we could, we could scornfully call them puppets. Jim Henson understood more about the imagination that I imagine that a lot of people working in the television medium can even begin to claim today. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And the website has show notes enabled at http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.